Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Carlos interviews Professor Charles Spence about sonic branding and experiences. Welcome everyone to the Customer Experience Management Podcast. Um, we are now in Season 4, and today I have a very special guest. Uh, he has been in the podcast before, uh, and... He's going to be talking about some new exciting findings on a topic called sonic branding, the power of how we use sound in experiences. So our guest is Charles Spence. He's a professor from uh, Oxford University. He specializes and he's perhaps one of the leading figures in the world on how our senses work and how perhaps, we can... Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would claim so. <laughs> um, on how the senses work. Uh, and what can, how can we capitalize on our understanding of the human senses to basically design the world around us in multiple different contexts. So, Charles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's very nice to have you again. Uh, I think we can dive directly to the topic, uh, which is sonic branding. So, what is sonic branding about? So, uh, like I said, um, sonic branding... Uh, has a number of terms are used these days. Um, really, obviously, the extension of visual branding has been around for much longer, and that many companies think and spend a great deal of time and money considering and updating. Um, but the question is, sort of, how does that extend into the other senses? And perhaps the first additional brand touch point then would be sound. Um, something that's very often not considered. What does our brand sound like? Uh, do we have a sonic logo? Um, and it's one that's sort of growing in importance over the last, I'd guess, decade or two. Um, and can incorporate everything from the sound of one's package, the sound of one's product, sound of the interaction, uh, I guess sound of, uh, what does your brand sound like in sort of a, B2B communications, when you're on hold, trying to get through to some company, do you have a brand sound there? Uh, through to uh, more explicit sort of low, uh, uh, auditory logos, or SOGOs, sometimes called, sonic logo, um, through uh, sort of jingles and other sonic assets uh, that can be tied to the brand. Uh, I think it's an area that is... I sort of got into having worked on the sort of sound of packaging back in 2008 or so. Uh, I've been long interested in the sound of stuff and how it affects product experience. So we've done a lot of work on the sound of everything from you know, car doors to the sound of crisp, the sonic chip experiment uh, made famous in the Ig Nobel in 2008 through uh, sort of more psychoacoustic design um, we try and sort of modify the sound of prototypically car doors, car engines. You know, what should your uh, mark of car, should a Porsche sound different from a Mercedes? Uh, and if so, can you sort of engineer in particular sound qualities? Um, and from that, it's been a kind of a natural progression from sort of augmenting or modifying the sound of product interactions to thinking about these more abstract uh uh, sound qualities, associations with the, with the SOGO, Sonic logos or, or jingles. And for me, I'm not a, I'm not a musician. Uh, 
nor a sort of marketing person. Um, but the interest is really in thinking about whether it's possible to, what can sort of psychological science or knowing about the brain uh, and the senses, how can that play in and perhaps provide insights around the design of or considerations of the consequences of particular sonic uh, design choices? That is very interesting. Um, and, you know, like uh, I was just remembering when I was doing my PhD with you mm -hmm. that you had a collection of coffee machines. Which mm -hmm, we were doing mm -hmm. some sound sound studies. Yep. Uh, what, what was it about? Um, so, given it's a few years ago now, I can talk about it. Uh, All right. Yeah, confidentially, LG <laughs> arrangements have uh, uh, expired. But really, for me, it was um, uh, having worked in car doors, car engine sounds for a few years, where probably most of the psychoacoustic design was focused, uh, then think about applying those insights and the paradigms for modifying product sound or interaction sound to other categories, uh, kind of the coffee machine uh, came up. Uh, and there we had a couple of lines of uh, experiments, one with um, uh, Clemens Novel, who's in the BI these days. Yep. Uh, when he was in the lab, uh, he was looking at modifying the sound of an espresso machines. And we had uh, two Nespresso machines, uh, one of which made a harsher sound. Mm. Uh, and then everyone got a cup of, I think 200 people got a cup of Nespresso, identical taste. But those who heard their, the, the machine, coffee machine making a harsher sound, uh, rated the coffee as tasting more bitter or harsher, less pleasant as a result. Um, and we were also doing work with um, uh, one of the sort of the vended coffee machines, that um, could be, they'd figured out the technology so they could make it silent. Um, and then the question is, would people like a silent coffee machine or not? And if, what could you replace the silence by? Um, and you know, quite often people, when you, in sort of consumer tests, you ask people, what don't you like about this kettle, this vacuum cleaner? Oh, it's too noisy. Uh, could you make it quiet? And then I'd love it. Um, and then you do that eventually make your a silent coffee machine, a silent washing machine, silent uh, coffee machine, uh, and the consumers don't like it. It doesn't seem to clean the, clean the dishes, they say. It doesn't clean the floor. So you need these kind of sort of feedback cues coming through, often implicitly, subconsciously through sound. Um, and we just took the same sort of approach there to then modify the sound of the actual action of, of coffee machines. Um, and, uh, and then thinking about nudging consumers that if they've got a choice in this vending machine of, you know, uh, a, a hot chocolate, coffee, tea, uh, what sort of music would bias people towards particular uh, uh, choices? Uh, if it was Colombian coffee, say, which I hear is very nice. Mm -hmm. um, it is, it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, then, you know, would Shakira uh, 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 be a good choice? Would that bias people sort of semantically towards that thing um, or not? And... Uh, yeah, we do this. So we had the coffee machines in the lab. We're doing those kind of experiments, even at some of the conferences that organised in Oxford, the International Multisensory Research Forum conference in 2016. I think we had the coffee machine up. We had it playing different kinds of music. And then we got, you know, all the conference delegates to get a free cup of coffee or tea or hot chocolate as we varied the uh, uh, sound that was um, playing from inside. And yeah, sort of interesting areas. In a way, it's a very obvious and easy extension from thinking about psychoacoustics of other of car sounds and engines to go to coffee machines. And yet no one seemed to have done it uh, before. And, uh, and maybe my, my, my favourite part was actually 
uh, working with a sound design agency, um, and we went around recording uh, 10 or 12 different coffee machines mm-hmm. for sort of home or commercial use, um, looking at them visually, uh, recording that, and the sound they made as you press the button through it grinding, through the drip, the hiss, the ejection of the capsule. And then we've had people uh, in, some, in lab studies, then it was, 2007 or so, uh, trying to match up you know, which, which coffee machine looks most expensive, high quality, which coffee machine sounds most expensive, mm-hmm. and then can you match them up? So does the coffee machine that sounds great, is it also the one that looks best? And the answer is certainly not. And you know, some of those machine sounds, when you isolate them from the visuals, it just sounds like a reversing truck or something. The absence of context, really horrible sounds, very harsh sounds. And it's just people have not thought about uh, that aspect of, uh, of design. And this all came out eventually in the marketplace with, um, it was it called? It was called the, uh, there was a, a vending coffee machine uh, that came out that when you came up to it would have the sound of a coffee shop, would release the scent of coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully uh, bias choice in a certain uh, direction that is super interesting so one of the things that i'm getting from what you're saying is that you know throughout all the different touch points let's say that are part of customer experiences broadly speaking there are sounds basically everywhere all around <laughs> them and sometimes we just don't think so carefully about those sounds potentially and there is a big opportunity to say for thinking about <clears throat> those specific sounds uh, to differentiate brand experiences and, and, and other sort of experiences. But then the question that comes to mind is, uh, and perhaps connecting with what you said at the beginning is, so you said that kind of like, you know, perhaps focus on visual branding was a big thing, you know, and th- there's a natural mm-hmm. extension to auditory branding as a second step. Uh, so the question that, that I have first is, broadly speaking, uh, would that apply to other senses? And then the second question is, why now focusing on uh-huh. audio branding? Um, so I think probably the more, the more sensory touch points that product or brand engages with, the better. Um, and some of those probably sensory touch points are more important than others. Um, and some of those sensory touch points have been more investigated or easier to modify than others. So it might well be the case that, in fact, uh, what your brand looks like is the number one most important sensory uh, 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 connection you have with your customer. And yet, if there's already been so much research on visual design, visual branding, there's not much more you can necessarily do or add. Whereas if sound is sort of, um, it's always there, any interaction, there's always a sound, or there isn't. And either way, it's meaningful. Uh, it's not something we necessarily consciously think about very often, but our brains are all the time picking up these sonic cues and using them to infer um, things about functionality, about quality, about prime associations or, or, or meaning. Um, so I think there's a big opportunity there. That's part of why now maybe. Um, but also it's perhaps easier to modify the sound of stuff or the sound of the environment in which things are bought or consumed or mm-hmm. um, than it is to modify uh, the tactile elements. Um, Got it. Are much easier to change the, the sound of something, potentially, or the sound of the place than it is to change the feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for these reasons, that, that, that I think sounds so interesting that it, on the one hand it hasn't been investigated 
and yet it's something that's easier to perhaps modify and play with um, and to change. And for that reason, it's sort of grown a lot, along with, um, I think, what sort of changed a lot is over the last probably five years or so, it's sort of, you know, the um, uh, voice assistants. Uh, mm. And suddenly for the first time, I think those brands who maybe they'd heard about audio branding, sonic logos and such like, but hadn't really bothered to, no, we've got our visual identity, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. um, are suddenly realising now, you know, consumers in many contexts now may be ordering, interacting with your product or brand uh, purely through voice. Hmm. See, so there's no opportunity for you to have a visual identity there mm -hmm. with a Siri or an Alexa. So what are you going to do? Um, and that sort of change in technology or the change of interaction suddenly forces many brands to say, no, we, we now really do need to have think about our auditory identity and I can also think, for example, of podcasts that are very, very popular in many cases. It's just people listening to podcasts mm -hmm. where more and more communications happening through podcast channels. So there might be a case to make also, you know, like it's just audio there. So mm -hmm. uh, and maybe, um, well, I guess you can go back to early entertainment. Then I guess the radio came before the television and then the radio is purely auditory as well. And I suppose there were a few early, I guess the very first sort of sonic logos and jingles were from, I don't know whether it was General Mills or something back in the mm -hmm. 20s or 30s when the radio so listening became popular really, and yeah. they'd be sort of, you know, they would sort of support or um, sponsor the most popular radio shows huh. and have their jingle and it's all sort of starts there. Um, but very few, I think, uh, brands really played in that space back then and only the bigger ones. And so, and they sort of fell into the background with the emergence of television and I guess more widespread print and digital media. But it's only now with sort of the voice control that uh, suddenly the thing's switching back uh, to the uh, opportunities, mm -hmm. but then perhaps also the necessity to think about auditory identity. Uh, and there, when it comes to that sort of voice, um, voice interactions, uh, maybe there's also a shift away from the kind of the psychoacoustics of what does my product sound like? To uh, how do I, what do I want my brand to sound like? Mm -hmm. Sort of brand identity, and hence a shift from you know modifying the sound of something like the coffee machine to thinking about what is the sonic logo would match Nespresso, mm -hmm. uh, what sort of jingles might um, work well, and even you know which sort of voice characteristics potentially would best match or with our brand uh, ambitions or mm -hmm. identity. That is, yeah, that is uh, super, super interesting. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, I'm wondering a bunch of different things, but let me start with, with one. Um, it's like when you're doing visual design, mm -hmm. it's like typically you have this discussion between the science and the creative part where mm -hmm. you say hire a research agency or you hire you perhaps mm -hmm. or me or something like that. You do a research project on what are the visual or the visual characteristics that maybe better go for a brand, whatever. And then you have the creative side on the other end, where it's like, you know, we want more freedom to play outside of these research boundaries mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, and sometimes companies lean to one or to the other, but I believe that perhaps it's a combination of both. But I, I guess my, my question goes toward, how do you decide on this? Um, and what does the science tells us? And perhaps how does that can be mixed with the creative side mm -hmm. of things? Well, I think... Um sort of my, my introduction to this world of sonic logos and sonic branding um, over and above the psychoacoustics of design 
uh, was with the Audio Branding Academy, which is like an organization of, from around the world of uh, sound practitioners working, um, trying to you know, stress the importance of sonic branding and identity, complaining that everyone spent their budgets on the visual and sound was the last thing they thought about, if at all. Um, Committed it through uh, there, and sometime around then, it's about 2011 or so, I remember being at, on stage at some branding conference, uh, and sitting next to me was uh, Walter Vachova, is his name, who's famous for creating the Intel Inside Sonic the logo. Sonic logo, which yep. is the characteristic. Yep. <laughs> yeah, one of the first or the most identifiable uh, of Sonic logos. Um, and we had exactly this sort of discussion about I'm there not as a musician or a designer, but as a sort of scientist. Uh, he's there as a creative, mm. uh, clearly very successful, in at least some cases, coming up with such logos. Um, and him saying, you know, on stage, you can't measure what I do. It's impossible. I'm a designer, I'm a creative. There's no role at all for science. Um, that was the claim back then. I saw him recently in a, in a, in a coffee shop by, by chance, and I think he's a softened his tone somewhat as many others have um in some cases uh maybe not voluntarily have such creatives um sought the advice or the guidance or insights or inspiration from science sometimes it doesn't come from the from the composers or the designers themselves but from the companies whom they are employed by mm -hmm. to create our new sonic logo and more and more of those companies are saying, we, we, we're not willing just to rely on what you tell us is the right solution. On your intuition as a designer or creative, we need proof. Prove to us that this is the best sonic design and why it matches. Uh, and for that reason, some of these sound design agencies are increasingly reaching out, either for the sort of, what, could, what sort of scientific insights, insights might inspire the way we create or constrain our sort of sonic creations, and on the other hand, okay, once we've come up with some sonic uh, assets, mm -hmm. can you help us validate that they do the job, what they say what's on the can, and they, um, uh, there is a good association or representation sonically of, uh, 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 of, the, of the brand identity. Um, so that is becoming much more common these, these, these days. And um, uh, I think that there are... Uh, opportunities where, for me, I, mean, I think sort of maybe there's no, there shouldn't be any loss from interacting with the science, the scientists, psychologists, or the sensory scientists, or mm -hmm. the neuroscientists, whatever is your preference, um, because both um, the science can help at both levels. I think it can both provide inspiration and constraints for the creative when they've got all possible sounds and instruments and timbres and, uh, and pitch and tempo and roughness, um, provide some guidelines there. So uh, we are in Denmark. That's what I was going to say somehow, that, that, that it feels to me that sometimes, you know, if you have a group of designers or Sony branding mm -hmm. people, you mm -hmm. know, just designing something and then you bring the science to just be the judge of, mm -hmm. of course, they might feel also attacked, you know, and, yeah. and it's like maybe yeah. it's not the best way to combine it. But if you say you start by bringing the knowledge before the mm -hmm. science take place, capitalizing on their intuitions, but fine tuning them with what the research says. Mm -hmm then you can come up with the signs together yeah. that then yeah. later are just simply confirmed yeah. or further mm -hmm. developed with the research. Uh, and in a lot of cases, um, a lot of this has been happening for us uh, around the world of sort of 
um, uh, multi-sensory brand experience through sensorium, sensplorations, kind of immersive experiences with brands, where we try to bring a solid element to, say, very often drinks, brands, whiskey, gin, wine, beer, coffee, chocolate. Um, and there uh, we would sort of work with the experts from within the company around the brand sort of flavour profile for, for the product. Uh, then look at the science and see which sort of sonic qualities match those taste, flavour, aroma, texture, attributes. Pass those insights on to the creative, mm. who will then take them and come up with a composition that's sort of inspired by, some degree constrained by the science, but oh. still allows the, the artist sort of almost free range to come up with something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's sort of launched. Uh, and then sometimes we'll get to kind of assess the creative's interpretation of the science to see have they taken it too far? Can people still uh, um, interpret the intended meetings? Um, and uh, 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 and even in some cases, have the has the artistic approach actually delivered something extra that wasn't necessarily picked up by the sciences yet? So sometimes we can analyse various creatives compositions to match a certain specification uh, uh, and then see which of those creative compositions works best mm-hmm. in the ear of the listener, of the consumer, of the taster, um, and then analyse what sonic properties distinguishes that successful sound. They probably all have some of the things we recommended, um, so that sort of helps uh, 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 there. And I think now there is probably a range of techniques for associating sort of the sound That's what I was going with to go next. brand yeah. uh, attributes. So let's say some... I'm a brand manager. How do I go about this? Like, mm-hmm. what, what are the tools that are there, you know, for yeah. me to... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, we are in Denmark uh, now and probably a few years ago here, I think Denmark's known as being one of the world's biggest, uh, was it to wind... Windmill kind of... Wind, uh, uh, windmill, sort of wind-powered yeah. mm-hmm. turbine. Uh, I think maybe they're the biggest. Uh, you know, so what sort, of, what sort of brand sound should they have? What should their jingle sound like? Hmm. was a question. What should they know there? In some cases, it might even be the sound of the brand name, brand name which sort of brand, uh, which sort of phonemes should be incorporated um, through to what, the, what our jingle should sound like, uh, what sort of voice characteristics of the person who's speaking in the advert... Um, and their techniques one might use are everything from a popular one is kind of the sort of semantic differential technique, which is one that goes back to the 1950s, really, uh, and is a means of kind of assessing the meaning or the uh, associations people have with concepts, which could just be words like, you know, mum, dad, cheese, chocolate, mm-hmm. um, in terms, uh, normally you give people a whole range of different uh bipolar attributes scales like good and bad uh uh active passive dominant submissive um male female male, dark, yeah, yeah. Light a whole stuff. range of these things yeah. and very often you can just use um sort of um statistical approaches to reduce that down to sort of pleasantness uh arousal and dominance um sort of three dimensions um and then you can do that for the brand what is our brand is it good, bad, active, passive, um, so on and so forth? 
and then say, okay, if I'm trying to design another sensory touch point, be it you know, a brand scent or a brand sound, then uh, do the similar kind of exercise for sonic qualities, which sort of instrument hmm. is matches in terms of you know, uh, valence, arousal, dominance, and so on, which kind of you know, tempo, uh, timbre, roughness, loudness, uh, you name it. Uh, and that provides a way of matching framework for sort of matching uh, across the senses. Which is interesting because in a way that captures sort of like the uh, perhaps more explicit meaning in a way if you look at the individual scales, you know, mm -hmm. where something is light or bright, you know, yep. dark, you know, things like yep. that. But then what you're also saying is like there's like an implied meaning here, right? So if you average across different scales, you might be able to extract some general attributes that might match, which is, for example, the valence yep. of the matching is like one is more positive yep. than the other one yep. or stuff like that. Um, I mean, at some level, you might imagine, well, of course, yes, there can't be many brands who imagine themselves, want to project themselves as bad, necessarily. Yeah. Maybe they're all good. Yeah. Um, uh, so is there enough kind of difference there? Is there enough semantic differential in these just a small number of scales uh, to adequately kind of segregate or separate uh, all the different sort of brands or propositions we might have in mind or attributes we wanted to display? But I think it's, it's definitely a, a useful approach. Um, it captures maybe one sort of association or meaning. Um, another approach is to, to look at sort of more, more sort of sensory associations people have with uh, between sounds and other qualities. So if we say these wind turbines, what are they? They're big rather than small. Should that be a low-pitched sound? Because low-pitched sounds are normally big objects. Um, what colour should that uh, be and so on and you can sort of pick sensory matches so sounds to match um, various attributes sensory and or conceptual attributes of the brand through a whole other research and cross-modal correspondences these kind of surprising connections we have that we all think whatever high-pitched is small, light, bright high mm. in elevation um, and so on I think these two approaches, I'm still try trying to figure out quite where the similarities and differences, do they tell you the same stuff or somewhat slightly different stuff? Mm -hmm. They can be sort of combined to provide these insights about what sort of sonic properties your uh, 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 logo should have. So here's, so here's a question that I, that I have from, from many people in some of my classes and some of my clients, which is like, uh, okay, if I have funding, I would definitely do like a, yeah. a study, but what if I don't have funding? So... Is this documented? Where can I access it? You know, mm -hmm. what is the best way to get informed mm -hmm. about these things? Um, so uh, there are a fair number of tomes, academic tomes out there now, and practitioner uh, uh, written volumes on sound design, sonic branding, sonic logos. Um, what one can find, both books and a lot more academic articles, actually which would sort of say what has been done and maybe provide the insights for those who want to uh, create something. Uh, and maybe this is a good point to say, uh, I'm going to be adding some uh, specific articles that actually Charles has published on this topic in the description of the episode, where you can access some of these reviews, you know, of kind of like the, hist in some cases, the history, the conceptual evolution, and many, many practical examples of how Sonic logos mm -hmm. branding, you know, has been developed throughout the years. Right. Um, 
and then uh, uh, I guess to come up with the a high quality solution, then I think you, you can't necessarily get that just from the science at the moment. Maybe that probably requires working with one of these um, agencies or sound designers or producers who may then, depending on the situation, may create some sonic assets that are sort of bespoke for a particular brand. Or in the other case, you know, th think about what sort of jingle or music they could pick off the shelf pre-recorded um, to, 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 to be associated with the brand. And there, I mean, one of the things I, I, I do think is that um, very often these sort of science-based um, creation, sonic creations, they can be true in representing the brand assets or qualities, um, but will they necessarily be liked? Hmm. And probably one of the things you want is you know, it, your visual logo should look good, your auditory logo, your logo should sound good. Pleasant. Uh, yeah. Mm. And especially if you're thinking about a jingle, then um, maybe it's easier to almost pick a, 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 a piece of music that we already know is hugely successful in the marketplace mm. and then attach that to your brand than it is to generate bottom-up, mm. uh, you know, uh, internationally liked sound. So there's kind of a trade-off there between um, uh, you know, creating something that's perfectly matched to the, to, to the brand or the attribute versus that may not be liked as much or picking something you know people love the set to listen to and then figuring out how to link it to the brand. And maybe it's not a perfect match for you, but you get the beneficial effects of the sort of liking. That is interesting. Um, and there, and there, of course, when it when it comes to sort of taking these pre-recorded, I mean, there's a cost of, of getting a composer or a sound design, sound branding agency to to help uh, design some sort of sonic assets. Uh, but there's also a cost to um, licensing you know, popular music for use in your adverts or in your on your on on on, um, on your sort of calls on the on the phone lines and while you're waiting online. Or I was thinking about you know when you're on the airplane. It used to be the Pearl Fishers uh, from the opera uh, that was British Airways had, and sort of uh, and George Gershwin was it Rhapsody in Blue was United Airways, and you'd always hear this sound oh. when when you're waiting to take off. Um, but that, that was kind of associated. It was very close. Those two sounds were very closely associated with the respective airlines. Uh, but kind of you know that was created prior to people thinking so much about you know mm. distinctive sonic assets, and there when you. When you take those, you've got to think about licensing, that's another whole level of cost um, to be added. So is it really worth what's my going to be return? Is it worth investing in my Sonic brand? Is it going to cost this much to license the music or to create uh, something? Uh, I think those in the audio branding community would, would, would have the various case studies to say, yes, it can be mm -hmm. worth it, uh, especially as we think we're moving more towards these sort of, you know, voice uh, controlled activated uh, things yeah that's um, what i was thinking because like the and what you said at the beginning is like the visual competition is so fierce that uh, differentiating at other sensory levels might be something that is quite relevant and now in particular that we are in or, or many people are moving toward more and more digital environments the level of customization that you can do of sound feedback sounds related to interactions with the brand and the brand itself mm -hmm. are basically a lot of them right mm -hmm. um and sometimes I've seen sometimes uh, some nice case studies where some of the sonic brand branding agencies have sort of developed a uh, how do you call it like a template mm -hmm. for a particular sonic 
uh, representation that that template can then be uh, altered by country. So you might say violins aren't very popular in Colombia. Maybe it's the pan pipes or whatever you listen to over there. <laughs> <laughs> but you take the same sort of uh, uh, series of notes but change the instrument to match the place or, nice. or, 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 or take the same notes and sort of um, draw them out temporally for an advert, whereas for you know, a two-second jingle, you can squash them. And so the same kind of sonic signature can appear using different instruments at different, in different formats for different uses. Uh, but there is still something that's kind of you know, uniquely yours. And that is also interesting. I imagine in the, I mean, one of the challenges that many companies, at least international companies, face when it comes to visual properties is, you know, what is the level of customization that I should make? Mm -hmm. So because there is a parallel of that here, you know, it's like there may be some, let's say, global codes of perhaps colors that signal specific things mm -hmm. that might be relatively similar across the world. But in many cases, you know, there might be some context specific. What red means in China yeah. is definitely the same what it means in Europe mm -hmm. more broadly. So... Uh, would you say that there is a parallel of this as well in the context of Sonic branding? Or do we have like a sound formula that... Uh, so that sort of maybe the cross-cultural meaning or... Um, I mean, we have an example work. Most of the Sonic design work, I guess, tends to have come out of Europe, North America, sort of Western um, uh, environments. But a lot of it's done... Uh, with classical music, Western classical music, right. which is a very different sort of sonic repertoire from uh, uh, other places. So we have just been trying to extend recently, saying we know that in maybe in hospitals in, in Europe and North America, if you play classical music in the waiting room, that helps to relax people. If you play classical music in the restaurant, that primes notions of price and people spend more. Um, if we take the same music and apply it in Malaysia, is it in a hospital there? Will it also relax people? Will it change their spending as well uh, and find different results? Uh, it's only one study so far, mm -hmm. but suggesting, yeah, maybe there are, there are sort of, yeah, there's cultural differences that need to be uh, to some degree taken care of. I mean, I think regardless of where in the world you are, there are some things that are the same, that high pitch is small. That's just a fundamental of physics. Mm -hmm. uh, if you kick it or break it or drop it, or uh, it, it makes a sound. So that's universal. Um, and which elements of this kind of cross-sensory communication are universal versus... Culture specific is um, uh, yeah, an ongoing question, and, and for us, you know, we just did a project where we we're trying to represent a taste journey for a whiskey uh, through sonic means, and we had a some spicy notes in one of the whiskies, mm -hmm. and for that, the sound design agency came out with a, a an Italian, no, an Indian Santa as an instrument. I've no idea what it looks like; mm -hmm. may never have heard it before, uh, but nevertheless, I think it's still did communicate with me, even though it was unfamiliar, the instrument, it had the right sort of psychoacoustic properties. That would match the... Yeah, yeah. I think spiciness uh, in that case. Um, and maybe, yeah, maybe the other way I'm thinking about it is, so far I've seen most of the sonic branding, uh, sound design research has all focused on instrumental uh, recommendations, musical uh, sounds. And there's virtually nothing out there on vocal sounds, hmm. the sound of voice, and what does that connote or denote or imply, and how could that be sort of personalised, customised to a particular um, demographic. Um, uh, and uh, I think it's a, a big sort of open research area. Maybe it's maybe it's not studied so much because it's kind of harder to describe mm -hmm. in a way I can just more easily describe the sound of a particular instrument. Mm -hmm. 
but I think nevertheless, you know, what can you tell from the sound of somebody's voice? Can you tell their their their, their age, their class, their their their, their gender, uh, their sex, their their health status, their attractiveness, mm-hmm. their personality? Uh, I think probably some of all these things are communicated again, not consciously, but they're there. They can be studied, um, and then you could potentially find the right sort of um, uh, communication with a brand that might be customized to a region uh i mean maybe at the individual level even just consider some individual differences on personality types if you Mm -hmm. know the personality of your customers you might be even adapt dynamically in one of these Uh, voice assistants and if i if i knew your favorite if i I knew your favorite tv show then maybe i could you know uh generate the voice of the actor Hmm. from your favorite tv show which would be different for you than for me uh, and just sort of uh, put that in there to get that level of communication, and um, and, and probably you know, in some of our work, we've been looking at sort of uh, the you know voice control or, or direction, say in the driving context, when you've got the um, vocal assistant there telling you to turn left at the next traffic lights or to stop or to. Mm. Does it matter what my sex or gender is? What that as to what I prefer. As a man, do I to enhance do, your response? Yeah, maybe I like it more to get a you know an instruction from a female assistant, sounding assistant, than a male one. Uh, but maybe it depends on the kind of information they're telling me. Um, and so there are all sorts of things to study there, and then actually to put recommendations in about opt, you know, scientifically uh, uh, optimizing the uh, and personalizing, customizing um, the vocal sounds as well as the musical. That Sounds, is super interesting. It reminds me a little bit of this concept of programmatic advertising, where you programmatically present different ads as a function of real, almost real-time segmentation of customers. So you have different ad options, and then you know that there are different customer segments, and depending on their browsing behavior, let's mm-hmm. say on the internet, you can match a specific mm-hmm. ad. And I guess there is a parallel to, for yeah. that to be made with audio in different mm-hmm. contexts, like the voice of the agency yeah. that you inter- the, the agent you interact with or the music that you mm-hmm. listen in a given moment uh, 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 and I suppose there uh, there's sort of, you know, issues around sort of confidentiality and privacy and uh, so sometimes that I guess that if, it's pr- if it's the programmatic advertising say when I'm looking at my newspaper online and I see my wife's what she's been shopping for mm-hmm. from the adverts yeah. that crop up uh-huh. That's sort of invasive in some way. Mm-hmm. If the vo- if the voice of uh, uh, was matched to my region, I'm from Yorkshire, so maybe it should be a Yorkshire person who's speaking, or, or where I am currently, or, or, or my nationality, would that be less obvious to me? Unless and, uh, invasive, and, in a way. And potentially less offensive. Uh-huh. So more subliminal or <laughs> surreptitious. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, just because you know, sound so often is in the background, we don't think about it. So uh-huh. maybe we wouldn't think about the the sound of voice either. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the one of the areas I think is uh, sort of exciting. Looking forward, um, and we're trying to to, to get into more um, thinking about what both what is possible and what can be studied and done and, and designed, and then to think about um, whether it's possible to use sort of generative AI to bypass. The expensive sound design agency. Hmm. So if I could just, you know, I'm imagining some bit of software uh, um, uh, that we could say, you know, what are, what are your brand assets? And you go A, B, C, mm-hmm. um, and, and then it would generate a sonic 
logo for you mm-hmm. based on these scientific insights uh, and then potentially bypass the need to pay royalties to the creator. It's kind of like the parallel of visual generative art and all these different things just in the context mm-hmm. of audio branding, yep. I'd say. Huh. Uh, I think so far I've heard of a few example projects going on in this space by some of the uh, relevant companies um, and maybe yeah, how far it can go uh, is probably an open question. I think so far I haven't heard of any uh, very successful cases okay. of the generative music coming up with a, and again I think it's it may come fall back to this question of you know, isn't it? It's important that people like what you create sonically, not just that it represents what the brand's about mm-hmm. um, or wants to be about, and that hedonic, that liking aspect may be much harder to uh, generatively create mm-hmm. than the um, kind of the, the, the brand attribute matching element. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it could be generative by considering the research that has been doing like the matching. So in mm-hmm. a way, that could be an input to any model, I guess. Yeah. Right. Uh, but but yeah, but, but maybe it only gets you sort of the um, uh, it could automatize. I mean, currently it seems sort of bizarre that companies would come to me, or very inefficient, should we say, rather than bizarre, uh, that the companies would come to me and say, okay, uh, can you help with sort of scientific guidance about what our brand or should sound like um then i'll say yes uh tell me about the flavor profile if it's a drink or tell me about your other brand attributes um and then i'll pass my insights on to the sound design agency mm-hmm. who then creates something and each time for each company uh or brand or product it's the same process yeah. slow laborious and uh, uh mm-hmm. and expensive not from me but from the brand um from the sort of sound, sound, <laughs> sound design agency perspective uh-huh. couldn't that be automated some some aspects of that ought to be uh uh, automatizable um, and hence presumably uh, 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 reduced in um, uh, in price. That is interesting, and I think potentially that's that. I mean, uh, as long as there is somebody capturing all the results and data that is deriving from studies and different things, probably where we might head at some point toward that. But then the question also becomes: all these things are based on data that has come from the past. What what? if a brand wants to innovate in that case, right? Which I guess it becomes a little bit more difficult because you're mm-hmm. going to... And, and probably the same happens with the matching even if it's not like generative AR or things like that. But let's say you go with a convention, there is a match between mm-hmm. a specific sound and uh, a series of properties, you know, that's the match. But I might be, say, a luxury brand. I, I remember there was like the, the head of marketing of a company that once told me, I mean, I can go with all these matches and associations that you're telling me, but maybe my brand is going to be boring in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So what, what yep. would be kind of like the, the way to address this? Yep. And, uh, uh, this is, uh, one question is just whether you were, whether uh, yeah, you're sort of entirely congruent with category or mm-hmm. and then which might become boring or do you play against type? And do sort of the opposite to stand out from the crowd. Maybe the, the, that sort of approach of, of differentiation through doing it differently mm-hmm. or presenting yourself sonically differently than congruent. It's a sort of a high risk strategy. Occasionally right. it works. Maybe it works better if you're a very trendy hip brand, cool brand mm-hmm. or something, than it does for more conventional uh brands. So that might play into it too. But as a general rule, I think just that does sort of doesn't uh, Pay uh off, work. Really. doesn't seem to work. But maybe if you think about it, okay. Is it, you know, if you think about electric cars and you know what should they, they have to have a sound otherwise p- people will be walking in front of them and getting yeah. run over so they've got to have a sound but what sound should an electric car have or um, 
my favourite going back is because I'm, I'm I'm a child of the of the seventies. My bed sheets used to be a uh, Luke Skywalker yeah. from Star Wars. Uh-huh. Uh, you know what? What should the lightsaber sound like? Huh. That was an instrument that hadn't had no sonic reference, didn't exist. That's and then it, and yet and yet there somehow I think it, I think it's not arbitrary what what a lightsaber ended up actually sounding like. Hmm. It probably was built on on these correspondences and if you go. There's some sort of low pitch thing, yeah, yeah, size, and uh, um, but at the same time, it is maybe it's a new sound that didn't exist before, and but, there are people coming out with new new instruments that haven't 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 uh, yeah. Never Which been. I imagine is like a massive opportunity for interactions in digital environments, where there might be like new objects or mm-hmm. interaction types that might not necessarily have a specific sound attached to them, mm-hmm. and then you just can have all the opportunity to create like these signature. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know to the extent that they do. Build off, even though it's new and novel and never heard before, it should nevertheless Yet. fit in with into this sort of generalization that if it's going to be big, it should be low pitched, hmm. uh, and you'd have a much harder job introducing your new sound, your new logo, your new instrument if it didn't line up uh, in some way. That incongruity would be harder to um, uh, uh, deal with. Um, so I think, yeah, this has been super interesting, Charles. And again, thank you so much for being in the podcast. Um, uh, again, for everyone, I will be putting some articles in the description. You can access more of this uh, information from Charles's work and other things that have been uh, done. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it might be interesting um, to also put in some of these uh, uh, sonic logos that have been launched recently, like for the International Flavors and Fragrances yeah. They have a sonic logo for a perfume yeah, yeah. house, yeah, as a general thing, and then and then sort of you know for one particular perfume, mm-hmm. uh, was it Victor and Rolf Spice Bomb? Mm-hmm. There is a sound like a specific sound soundtrack for that particular perfume, not for that. For for so here, if the fragrance brands can, you know, uh, 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 and, and then those sort of sonic assets are available to uh, to listen to on, online, online, yeah. online. So put a couple of links to those might be that's actually a very good idea we actually have a new paper that uh, charles has been you know mentioning bits and pieces i guess in in this uh, conversation Uh, so i'll be uploading as well some of these sonic you know logos experiences that have been matched to specific products and brands so that you can get an idea of how this works Uh, charles i have one final two-part question for you before Mm -hmm. we finish the podcast so the first one is what is one of your favorite examples of uh, Sonic branding that is out there? And then the second one, which is, you know, the drill with the, um, with the podcast we typically ask toward the end. If you could give any advice to practitioners working in the context of branding, you know, product development, stuff like that, what would you tell them about Sonic branding? Hmm. Yes. Uh, so I've forgotten you've been asked that. <laughs> last time, uh, maybe I'd probably go for uh, yeah, something like the Intel Inside, or just as being a, a you know, the sort of the, how do you represent something that you can't see? Hmm. Uh, a sort of a very nice early example. It's probably set the standard for you know how many notes are. Sonic logo should have and whether it should be ascending or descending, um, and that's I don't know, yeah. But perhaps the, whether that's the one that's most Intel. Yeah, Intel. yeah, that's like a signature yeah. case. I mean, okay. it's, I use it all the time in my lectures yeah. because it's super interesting. Um, so with the, yeah, 
basically it's one of the first. It sets the standard for I think what comes later. Um, probably universally recognisable, and for you know for capturing something that is you know, not visible, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a harder job to do. Um, that, and that, that is true because it's like we're talking about micro components of a computer. Yeah. So it's not something that you just like you know using your everyday life directly, but it's part of right. So it's invisible in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't think of that point. That's um, and uh, advice wise. Um, I suppose it would have to be that uh, um, I'd always think that bringing in sort of the scientific insights, be it in the creation, inspiration phase of, of designing some sonic uh, assets or in the assessment phase, um, is not something that need constrain creativity, um, but I think very often can enhance uh, the outcome, the output. Um, and certainly helps to uh, provide more confidence that the output you've created right. uh, is the right one to move forward with. And I think that's pretty fair. You know, one of the questions that people were asking me in a recent multisensory packaging course that I was doing was, how can I, you know, uh, capture the return of my investment mm-hmm. when I do something like this? So, having both a really good team combination of the creative part and the scientific part can really bring out some nice outcomes that can be tracked and measured at the same time so right charles thank you very much yeah this was uh, excellent very very happy to have had this podcast with you again and uh, i'm sure that our listeners are going to enjoy it everyone i'm gonna post uh, also the contact details of charles in the description below so please check them out Uh, he has fantastic work around Everything, uh, the senses and applications that derive from this sonic branding is just one of the lines of research and consulting that he has. So please go and check um, his website. And yeah, thank you so much, Charles. Yeah.